0: How it came about was probably the most random of events uh, and improbable circumstances you can imagine, Olga. I was sitting in my apartment in Frankfurt reading the Wall Street Journal when I saw an ad for this job posted there and looked over to my wife and said, hey, would you be interested in staying in Europe for a little bit longer? Because we were only supposed to be in Frankfurt for three years. Of course, it was more than just responding to an ad. but. That's how it worked for me. I saw an ad in the paper. I responded to it. And then there was a series of other improbable things. For example, I learned how to speak German before I went, and I was able to interview with some of the management team in German. It turns out I didn't need to speak German to do the job because it was almost all in English, but just showing that cultural affinity was a mark in my favor. And then a few other small things like that that I think helped give me a leg up. But honestly, mostly it was just the company had a young management team and was willing to take a chance on young Inexperienced but ambitious people. I was thirty when I got the role.
1: <laughs> wow, I love that. And 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 how long were you in that in that uh, general counsel role?
0: Twenty, a little over twenty years. So that whole time from thirty to fifty was all on all the time. Of course, as with any role, if you've been in it a while, you know that it is. As your company evolves and expands, your role evolves and expands. I took on responsibilities. I took on special projects. I never felt like I was doing the same thing for more than a month at a time, even though much of the responsibility did stay the same. So I I grew with the company um, over that time. And actually, interestingly, most of the colleagues I started with, that junior management team, stayed for the entire journey as well, which made it immensely rewarding.
1: So let, let's talk about it. You said you, you know, you, you had a job for 20 years. As somebody who never had a job, I, I, I haven't done anything for 20 years other than being alive. Um, I haven't practiced law for 20 years, I haven't been married for 20 years, I haven't had kids for 20 years. Okay. Uh, I've been married for 15, so I guess close enough. Um, uh, but I've never had a job uh for, for that long. So I've almost unimaginable for me to 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 have that type of commitment. I'm not saying never, I'm just saying I've never done it before. Um but you said, look, I mean, I've had many special projects. Let's talk about that. It sounds like your job, you know, your title may or may not have changed much over 20 years, but you have, your job has changed many times. When you talk about special projects, what, is that, what are the examples and how do you get them?
0: I think finding ways to stay motivated and to keep the right perspective about your job is the key to doing it for the long term if it is a job that you like and i happen to like my job and my company a lot i liked the word you used before Olga i think you wanted to refer to identity crisis rather than midlife crisis and identity crisis isn't bad actually i had a couple of those including one right in the middle after 10 years where i said oh i, I gotta uh, career progress requires me to go get a bigger job i gotta go be general counsel of a bigger company you know, I got to be at a Fortune 100 company because that's what career progression means. And I went off and I interviewed and I got offered another job. And it was only when I was evaluating whether to take that job or not. And I took the opportunity to really think about it and talk with colleagues, including my, my boss and my management team, right? I told them before I, I went off and uh, took the job, which caused me some difficulties in rebuilding trust with them. But I'm still happy I did it that way. And it it led, though, to the most important learning I had over my career, which let me stay in my career. And I haven't forgotten your question. I'll come back to it. But I just want to say this. Realizing what was important to me, what I liked about my job and the things that made me value it. Uh, do I like the people I'm working with? Do I like the work that I'm working on? Um, do I trust that my company has uh, a good strategy and good career prospects? I realized I had everything I needed for a successful career and a happy life right there in front of me, and I would be a gigantic fool to be giving that up for some temporary uh, hit I got from making a change. I wrote an article about it. It was one of the first articles I wrote. I didn't publish it until years later. It's called the Stoic Career Path, and it was really a way to think about well, what do you get out of your job, and why do you like it? So. I'll stop with that, but then I'll come back and answer your question about how did I change my job as a result? What are the things I did alongside the GC role to help keep it interesting? But does that make sense to you, what I just said? Yeah,
1: no, it was. I, I, I was listening uh, in suspense. I, I do want to get to the things. I, I do also want to talk about the article that you wrote. So I'm letting you talk because all of this is very interesting, not because I'm particularly polite, although I am sometimes exceedingly polite.
0: Uh, <laughs> So, okay, some of the things I did to keep it interesting along the way were inside my company and some of them were outside my company. Like you I've been working together with the Association of Corporate Counsel for many years. You you started writing for external publications quite a long time ago. I only started doing that recently, but those, you know, volunteering with ACC, going to ACC events, meeting ACC people, talking on panels, and now of course contributing uh, original uh, publications for them. Those were all ways that I could do something adjacent to my job, clearly helping me in my job directly sometimes with substantive know-how, but then indirectly by getting to meet other interesting, cool people. That was something that enriched my on-the-job performance for a long time.
1: Yeah, I love ACC. Fun fact, you may or may not know, I um, I actually st- helped them to start their um online document publication for the longest time i was the only contributor and i did not not know
0: that that is so awesome
1: yeah and because remember they used to have that what i used to call a vogue for in-house lawyers the the actual physical publication that they were mailing to people and i was saying telling them you know when they started which was a while ago this this was kind of out of style increasingly we should have an online publication they eventually heard me and, um, and uh, I, because I was pushing for it, I, I got and at that point I was publishing for the Above the Law quite a lot. Um, I got the opportunity to to contribute like the first 10, 20 articles uh, there. So for the longest time I was the writer there too. Um, but uh, now it's it's stuffed up. It, you know and um, it's, it's a great publication featuring amazing thought leaders like you, James. I'm, I'm really excited. It's a really vibrant place where people share, their practitioners share, share you know tips and tricks and the career paths. So I'm really excited. But yes, I remember that publication when I was making a business case as an outsider that maybe we should stop sending the Vogue uh, to the mailbox. And the, it was funny because we had a real discussion. You may appreciate this. Um I was told that there are people who collected them and they will have a hard time transitioning to to um, to uh, online publications i said that i went to my local goodwill and i saw somebody donated their collection of national geographics and vogue that they've been collecting for the last 20 years um and i said expect that coming to the town near you for the acc physical publications as much as i really enjoyed getting them in the mail Um, But yes, so I'm so glad. The
0: the online version is, of course, awesome. I have to admit, I was one of those people who liked getting the hard copy version, mainly because I would create a little pile of reading materials. So I'd get the Harvard Business Review, I'd get the ACC docket, and I'd have this little pile of stuff that I would take with me on the plane uh, where I would have eight hours of uninterrupted reading time. And I used to really (laughs) enjoy it. But no, that's awesome. Good for you uh, helping keep the ACC moving in the right direction. You still do
1: it. You pay Ten to twenty bucks, depending on your flight, for internet access, and you can access anything on ACC docket. But maybe it's a different experience than holding a hard publication. I agree with you. It was actually very beautifully done. It 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 was really nice to hold it in its in your hands.
0: <laughs> and I'm going to disagree with one small thing you said in that is I would find the person who enabled Wi-Fi on planes and push them off a cliff because I used to love that uninterrupted time to study and work and think. It was just such a relief not to be connected for a little bit of time. But, okay, enough of that.
1: <laughs> this is just theoretical disagreement. That sounds good. So what else, have you, what, what else did you find useful to, um, to um, supplement uh, the 20-year general counsel career to, to keep you excited and, 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 and to explore different things?
0: Two external things I'll mention, and then one category of internal things. Maybe to start with the internal things, I volunteered for projects that were outside my scope of responsibility, and sometimes the company said yes, and sometimes the company probably shouldn't have said yes. So one in particular just was a thorn in my side for a long time because I just really struggled to make traction with it, and that was the revamp and rollout of a new global uh, corporate intranet for employees. It was a complex, difficult project, and it just was way more time-consuming and required uh, the amount of expertise that I did not have when I started, and it took me probably the better part of 10 years to build. At the end, I'm happy I did it because I became much more tech-savvy, much more tied in with our IT organization, which was a great set of friends to have for so many other reasons. But boy, it tanked my performance reviews for years. Um because I just wasn't getting it done, uh-huh. so that was a humbling experience to realize that just because you're good in a few things does not mean you're going to be good in everything you try, and that was good to learn. Painful, but good.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, I, it's 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 true, um, and I think there's a little bit of you know being a really good lawyer and being really good in-house lawyer, being a really good general counsel is definitely sort of a skill, and not everyone perfects it. Uh, when, when you do get to the other side, there is a little bit of an arrogance that 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 comes with it, where you feel like you can be anything and do everything easily. Um, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> and so it's very humbling to, you know, have the size of ambition and go for it and actually be reminded that, you know, maybe you're human first um, and humans sometimes have a learning curve. Um You know, uh, you also have done sustainability work and that came as a sort of, um, I guess, identity crisis as well. (laughs) So that seems like a a theme. (laughs) Uh,
0: Not so much. It's more, I would say, the openness and willingness to try new things. You mentioned in one of your earlier uh, interviews, I think it was with Aparna Williams, that there's a big difference between GC and the number two rule. And you don't realize it until you make the step. But then once you've made it, uh, you you do start to feel like, oh, I can do anything I set my mind to. And if I had to err on the side of over-cautious versus overconfident, yeah, I'm going to pick overconfident because it opens you, I mean it, even if you make mistakes and don't always succeed, it means you're open to trying things in a way that you might otherwise not. So I'll give you the other examples. One is so simple, but it had a huge impact on my life. And the other one, is maybe a bit more profound. The simple one was just reaching out to do some intentional networking. I think you referred to it in one of the discussions you had, maybe with David Hamm, intentional versus accidental networking. I It was probably an HBR article I read that suggested uh, the importance of doing networking and some easy ways to do it. So I was like, all right, I had never really thought about it, never done it in a targeted way. But my network was also, I think you said at one point, GC poor and CEO poor. Uh,
1: <laughs> oh, you're I, a listener. I like you even more now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what did I do? I just reached out to the board members on our board and said, hey, could you put me in touch with your general counsels? That's all I did. So interesting, you know, great board members, interesting, great GCs. That little exercise, which honestly took me no more than two or three hours in total, unlocked a whole world to me that then led to other great things. So one simple chain of events was I met the two general counsels uh, in Switzerland at big companies who then said, oh, you guys, uh, you should be on this this legal committee of the Swiss American Chamber of Commerce. And I was like, what's that? (laughs) <laughs> I was like, are fine, whatever. And then I went and it was this absolute powerhouse of everyone who is anyone in the legal community in Switzerland. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there in this room with people who are connected with government officials, who are behind important public policy decisions, who are the heads of all of the biggest companies. And I thought, okay, that was a good call.
1: I'm in the, the, I'm in the right room now.
0: <laughs> exactly. And it happened completely serendipitously, even though I had started the exercise on purpose. Um, In that room, I also met the head of the Europa Institute of the University of Zurich, who invited me to give a talk at, you know, a lecture. And that led to over a series of escalations, uh, me ultimately teaching in the LLM program. So what I want to say with that is sometimes very small things lead to bigger things. So the openness to going out and talking to people on the one hand and then to when somebody says, hey, would you be interested in giving a talk? your first answer should be yes, even though your gut is saying, no, I'm way too busy, I'm never gonna have time to do this because you don't know where it's gonna lead.
1: Yeah, no, I um, I found that talks, conversation, small groups are large, uh, are very powerful ways to connect and, um, and bring people into your life and have them root for you. Um, you mentioned teaching, that's something you and I also have in common. What do you teach, how long, and why?
0: So really, the teaching started with doing trainings inside my company. We want to share information about culture, compliance, values, guidelines, you know, stuff that lawyers work on and do. But I took it as an opportunity to become an interesting and engaging speaker and presenter. How do I take otherwise dry topics that people don't like or may not like and make them interesting and accessible. So really, I think of myself as having been a quote-unquote teacher since early on. Switching to doing that for external audiences required almost all the same skills. So for me, it was a logical next step. I teach in the LLM program a variety of different topics, constitutional law, you know, tax, administration, IP. The topics are probably less important. Mostly the angle is uh, U.S. law or common law for non-US lawyers, so people from Switzerland but other countries who are interested in how the US legal system works. So it's a little bit easier. I don't have to be the super expert on it. I just have to know a little bit more than they do about the US legal system. Something I'm proud of is that after having taught for a number of years, uh, I was able to develop together with the University of Zurich, a 14 week in-house counsel course. Uh, with 30 different faculty from mostly in-house counsel, senior legal positions across Switzerland and Europe, who then serve as the faculty, giving an absolutely awesome introduction to what are the things you need to know in order to be uh, the most effective in-house counsel. So that's a whole new course that we developed together.
1: And and where where is that taught? Is that is that ACC or is it another organization?
0: That's the University of Zurich. So oh, the University
1: of Zurich. Okay, yeah. in Switzerland. Oh, that's really exciting. Um, that that's, that, that's ra- sounds really great. And you said you also teach at Georgetown now, or, or did I hear something different?
0: No, that's uh, I'm not teaching there. I'm a visiting faculty or a visiting researcher. Um, they call us faculty, but really, I'm just reading books and articles and trying to re-engage the part of my brain that is able to concentrate for more than 30 minutes at a time. I got to tell you, Olga, that is really hard. I am not used to concentrated work anymore i don't know what happened
1: well i think what happened is in house practice happened is because we you know when whether we're in the office or at home we interrupted we have we do a lot of subject matters you know you just alluded to tax ip securities and a bunch of other issues all of that happens under one roof under one head Um, probably on the same day. So it, that also leads to making it really hard to, to, to have deep work. And then because we are trained over the course of our, um, career. To 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 do a you know like a ninja stuff. You show up for for an hour and you do a ninja stuff, and then you go to another hour and do another ninja stuff, um, and then on average it it sort of averages out averages out to a good outcome, and you're rewarded for that. Uh, that is of course not deep thinking or deep work. That is just doing a ninja stuff for an hour. That that's what it is. So um it, you know um very interesting conversation. Um I I love your perspective of you know, knowledge being sort of table stakes that you need to have, um, you need to be able to uh, connect and and communicate and listen and be curious. Um, Tell us a bit more about how your psychology study benefited you from during the in-house career. Can you think of sort of specific examples where you made use of what you learned?
0: Yes. Okay. That's a a good question because originally, what I thought I wanted to talk to you about was why not wanting to be a lawyer made me a better one. And what I had in mind with that comment was, I really liked psychology. I went to school to study psychology. And it was only in my senior year when I looked at what psychologists earned and how long they had to study in order to be able to get good jobs that I thought, Ooh, maybe there's a better way. But I really, from the intellectual appeal of it, psychology was one of my early loves. And it's fascinating because it peels back the layers on how people think. We especially lawyers like to imagine that we're rational thinkers but honestly we are just as emotional and crazy and justifying our decisions after the fact It's
1: worth repeating we're just as emotional and crazy, uh, and just emotional <laughs> and crazy. Okay just I'm going to put a pause here because that is absolutely true but we're going to say we're rational yes that's true
0: <laughs> Now just because we're emotional doesn't mean and irrational doesn't mean we're unpredictable And what I found with my psychology studies and also reading afterwards, there's some good psychologists who've written some great books about the topic. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Daniel Ariely, has a book called Predictably Irrational that I really like. Uh, People are predictably irrational, which means you can take advantage of their emotional makeup and their biases to help steer things your way. The concrete example, which is a trivial one, but it's actually important. And I'll say I've used it uh, with no shame. We are, as people, pretty bad at evaluating the merits of an idea in isolation. So if I come and present a proposal, people will struggle to say, that's a good idea, it's a bad idea. So how do you improve your chances of getting your proposal approved? Simple. You just package it together with two or three other ideas that have different features. And if we're bad at judging something in isolation, we become geniuses at judging the relative merits of an idea. We can say... I like this idea, I don't like this idea. So the the simple takeaway is when you go present a proposal to your CEO or your boss for approval, make sure you present two or three alternatives, all of which are worse than the one that you wish your CEO to approve. It sounds manipulative, but it's not. It's not intended to be.
1: I love it. Um, Have you done it in your career?
0: Um, I think I'm safely enough away now to say, yes, of course, I do it all the time. you try in good faith to do it. You try to do it for the right reasons in the right way. But honestly, um, I'll give you another example. People tend to hold more strongly beliefs that they have publicly stated. So how do you use that in running a compliance program, for example? Well, that's the reason you have a specific acknowledgement at the end, something that you have to sign or click that says, I acknowledge that I've read and I agree with this stuff. If you just read it and have to promise to follow it, that doesn't have the same impact as making a public physical statement of some kind. Just a simple psychological principle that you can leverage in running your compliance program. There's probably 5, 10, 15 hacks like that that I used on a routine basis to improve my effectiveness. Um, they're powerful ideas. Psychology lends some really interesting insights into how to work with people, how to be more persuasive. So so those are ways that my psychology background, I think, helped me in the business world.
1: Yeah, I find the intersection of law and other things is full of great ideas and, and lessons. For me, it's economics, for you, it's psychology, closely related, definitely another study of humans um and law is a really ripe intersection of, of both of those fields and you 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 definitely see overlap and lessons and 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 useful stuff there um i want to talk a little bit about business skills and you know as a you know i talked a few times on my shows that there is a difference between number 2 and number 1 lawyer sometimes people refer to that difference as sort of understanding the business i actually think it's much deeper difference than that but you know that brings me to the question of you know how important is to really have business skills. You know, there's a variety of courses, including ACC's, a pocket MBA, and all kinds of other things. Uh, Do do, do lawyers need to uh, understand business? How well, how deeply do they need to have an MBA? I'm just curious, especially if somebody who's been a general counsel at a public company for 20 years um, and considered, you know, going to a bigger one, decided ultimately to have impact at a company you were at and have a variety of stuff. Just curious how you, you whether you found the, that business sort of acumen important, whether you think MBA is needed, and then how do you sort of develop it all so you, you can do the business conversation with your business colleagues
0: that you support? Okay, you've got a couple of important questions wrapped up in there, so I'll try to answer them and uh, stop me if I'm going on too long business sense, vital, absolutely vital for in-house counsel. And let's just start with that one and why. And the biggest, the easiest way to draw the distinction is to say, how does it work when you are working in private practice? And how does it work when you're in-house? In private practice, the legal answer is the most important thing. That's why we go to outside counsel. We want to get a difficult question answered correctly. And oftentimes that is not what the business wants to hear. right? In-house, you cannot propose technically correct but ultra-conservative advice because the business only grows by taking risks. So you adjust your mindset by understanding legal advice in the business context. That's what you're there for. Otherwise, we could just hire outside counsel for everything. We don't because inside in-house counsel are basically already conditioned to giving risk-adjusted advice. And for me, that's what a good business sense is all about. What risks are okay to take and not okay to take. So that's point one. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. I'm actively listening. Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay. And then the second question, which I think is an interesting one, do you need an MBA? Um, I'm biased because I got one. Before I went to practice law, that was the second step. I I thought, okay, I'm going to go get a law degree and a business degree because I want to enter into a business career. It wasn't until I was almost done with law school that I thought ah, maybe it would be good to work as a lawyer. It took me a while to make my way back then. I worked a couple of years, five years in private practice to what I think is the sweet spot for people who have that interest in the business side of things and in economics, but then also uh, want to practice law. In-house is a great place to do that. I would say, if I'm honest, the MBA was exceptionally helpful, but it's certainly not necessary. What you, what you need, I believe, which anyone can develop is, uh, business sense is too broad a way to say it. Uh, maybe I could use these words. You need to understand how incentives drive behavior.
1: <laughs> uh, no, incentives. It's true, it's absolutely, it's, it's a good way to put it.
0: Yeah, positive incentives, negative incentives. If you can understand what are the incentives driving behavior, it makes you a better negotiator. It makes you a better lawyer. It certainly makes you a better business person. Did I benefit from understanding, you know, Michael Porter's five forces model uh, and other things? Absolutely. For me, it was, I, I never wanted to be relegated to the narrow role of just answering legal questions. The more you can sit side by side with your colleagues on business questions, the better partner you'll be. I remember one of my most favorite Compliments I got over the entire time I was at my company, a senior manager said to me, You know, I totally forgot you were a lawyer. And I thought, Oh, that's so nice. I'm here because I'm the lawyer, but they are also listening to me because of my judgment, my general business judgment. And lawyers have great judgment, right? We're great at analyzing things. It's a small step, I think, to then saying, And I'm willing to give an opinion because I have one about a business topic. I think most of the time we hold ourselves back because we think it's not our role. It's not that we don't have an opinion. Many smart lawyers, I would say most of us actually have a good opinion. We just don't know if it's appropriate to share.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that swimming in your lane thing is definitely Mm -hmm. a thing that you see with lawyers, in-house lawyers or otherwise. But coming to the end, I have a few more questions. Maybe I'll ask you about your frustrating experiences. You had experiences as general counsel, as uh, sustainability leader, as uh, someone who contributes to ACC, somebody who is teaching, somebody who is a scholar, that I, who, who now professionally reads stuff and uh, and, uh, and, and deeply thinks about it. I, I've never done that, so that did not come out as naturally. It's just somebody who, who has no idea what that means. Let's talk about frustrations. Do you have any, and, and, and is there a common theme around that?
0: So the the short answer is I have them. I have them in spades. If I, I have to laugh about them though, because I'll give you the summary up front. And I think it is that those frustrating experiences gave me a burning desire to learn, to get better, to grow, to challenge myself, to do better. If you stay in your comfort zone, you will perform well and you'll feel good, but you are not growing. So growth is what derri- uh, drives your professional development and ultimately your career. So, I suppose there are people who are always successful in everything they do and I hate them, but.
1: (laughs) You don't hate them. We'll learn from them. We went to the show and we'll (laughs) learn from them, James.
0: I'm jealous. I, I needed to make mistakes, but those mistakes served as fuel for my desire to do better. We talked about some of them, the internet project where I learned I wasn't good at everything. Teaching has been almost all positive, but what I had to accept there was no matter what the class, no matter what the year, there's always a tiny number. I mean, in most cases, a small number of students with whom they're like, eh, I could take it or leave it. I just don't connect well with them. And I used to obsess about that and say, how come I can't get a hundred percent positive approvals? And I realized it because I got different feedback each time. It wasn't about me and what I was doing. It was just about them and where they were. So I got a little bit more relaxed about that, but that was frustrating and difficult. Um, volunteer organizations, I'll say this, ACC is amazing, but I had a few frustrating experiences there. For example, when I went from the board of ACC Europe to being president of ACC Europe, it was a dreadful transition. I felt like, oh my god, we do this every year, and it's like it's never happened before. I had to learn everything from scratch. <laughs> that, yeah, that was frustrating. Europe
1: does embrace ACC? They're they they are a lovely organization, but yeah, they are you know a bureaucratic, frustrating one too sometimes.
0: <laughs> I learned from that, and I got a great benefit from it, which was I created something called the GC Handbook, uh, a year in the life, and I just started keeping track of all the stuff I was doing that sort of formed part of the implicit know-how. And I built it up over time. This was years and years and years before I ever thought of transitioning. But when I did transition, that served as an exceptionally useful tool for me to work with my successor so that she didn't have to start from scratch like, you know, I, I wouldn't have wanted to.
1: <laughs> James, I love this conversation. And thank you for sharing your experience as a general counsel, as a sustainability leader, as ACC leader, as a teacher as all kinds of volunteer, all kinds of things. As I mentioned you know, before, in-house leaders are humans first and they have lives that are rich and, and full of all kinds of stuff. And it's really exciting to hear about it and learn from it. So thank you so much uh, for being on the show. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. If you want folks to kind of maybe leave with one thing to make sure that they implement it today or something that really impacts their in-house legal practice, what do you think it should be?
0: Uh, It's been a pleasure, Olga. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm honored and delighted to have been here. Uh, The thing I would leave people with is this. It is no matter how busy you feel, and trust me, I know you feel busy, (laughs) say yes to a few things that are not core to your job, but close to it. Do some volunteering. Do some intentional networking. Because not all of those things will pay off, but some of them might and they'll pay off in unexpected ways. So if you really are interested in career development, career growth, you need to put yourself into some new and uncomfortable situations and just let it go. Let it go where it goes. So that's my advice, especially to the most busy amongst us. Don't focus just on your core job.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thank you, James, for joining and sharing your experiences. Thank you, everyone, for joining.